Welcome to episode number 22. I'm Jessica, and in this episode, Casey and I are going to be talking about groups for survivors of interpersonal violence. This episode holds a special place in my heart because it'll be my last one. I'm moving on from my position with the WGAC this spring to deepen into more clinical work around Fort Collins. I have so enjoyed joining my co-hosts on this podcast, and I hope you all continue listening. I have no doubt that there is so much more valuable information to come in future sessions, and I wish you all the best in your healing journey. We're definitely going to miss Jessica, and we're sad to see her go, but we know that she's going to be doing great things, and we've been grateful for the time we've had with her here at the WGAC. So when we thought about what we would do with this topic, we thought it would be helpful for our listeners because we often hear from survivors that they don't want to or they have already done so much one-on-one work that talking to a professional isn't really what they're needing. They need to be around people who get it. They're feeling isolated in their social circles because they're always having to explain why they feel the way that they do. Well, support groups are a great way to connect with survivors and get some mutual support. In fact, Jessica and I have worked together on several groups over the past few years. And throughout this podcast, we'll share a little bit about our experiences and the impacts of those groups. So I'm going to start us off by explaining a little bit about the different types of support groups out there. Some of the ones we'll talk about are peer support groups, psychoeducational groups, and processing groups that are a bit more therapeutic. At the WGAC, we run several groups each semester, each one a little bit different. One of these groups is what's known as a peer support group that meets once a week, every Friday afternoon. This is a group with little to no structure and gives a space for survivors to support one another as peers. There are no set topics for each week, and we really just focus on whatever is present for group members that day. Most peer support groups may be organized by facilitators, but often they are primarily member-driven with facilitators simply holding the space for the group. Casey and I often facilitate our Friday group together, and we find that once we get started, we actually do very little talking. The group tends to take on a life of its own based on who shows up that day and what they really want to talk about. And the best is when we see survivors become supports for one another outside of group. We really cannot underestimate the healing power that feeling less alone has on alleviating feelings of depression, worthlessness, and anxiety. And groups can add another layer of support in addition to individual advocacy or therapy, so that if you're needing lots of well-rounded support as you move through a particularly challenging period of your healing journey, it's great to consider cultivating a team of support that can surround you and help you with feelings of isolation. In fact, several years ago, our members got so close to one another that they formed what they called after group. They said that they weren't ready to be with non-survivors yet, and so they would go get coffee or make dinner at each other's houses because being with other group members was often the only time that they let their guard down around other people. We do notice that in just about every group, a theme tends to emerge. Maybe it's that several survivors are struggling that week with communicating with their partners or feeling a lack of support from their friends. Other weeks, group members have even bridged the conversation on using psychedelics for healing or finding other non-conventional means of processing trauma. One of the things to note is that there are two different types of groups, open and closed. Our Friday peer support group is run as what's known as an open group. 
Open groups are those where you can join or leave the group at any time. So members may change from week to week. Facilitators and group members often encourage regular attendance to build the rapport of the group, but the commitment is usually much more flexible. An example of a closed group would be our body and mind group. This is organized to meet consistently for eight weeks, and each week we explore trauma's impact on the body. The group is considered closed because no new members are allowed to enter the group once it starts, and group members are committed to attending all eight sessions. Each session builds on the last, learning and practicing actual techniques to help manage trauma symptoms. These techniques include yoga, mindfulness, and breath work. This group is different from our Friday support group in that it can be considered a psychoeducational group. Basically, that's a fancy word meaning that there's a stronger emphasis on learning and practicing new coping skills than on processing experiences. That said, we do talk about what group members are feeling in the moment, where other groups can be more focused on sharing their actual stories. In fact, it's one of the key differences to the support group model that Jessica just spoke about. In groups like this, a deeper connection to other members isn't the focus. The focus is on learning and processing with an internal lens. And the Counseling Center here at, on the CSU campus also runs a whole bunch of groups that many survivors we've worked with have attended. One particular type of group that the Counseling Center offers is called an interpersonal processing group. These groups focus on helping group members improve their communication skills, increase their emotional intelligence, and gain insight into how they relate to others. Group members in interpersonal process groups learn about themselves through exploring their feelings towards themselves and other members, and they practice this by giving and receiving feedback. These types of groups may focus on past experience and outside relationships, but they focus mainly on the interactions between group members in the present moment. These groups are usually facilitated by trained therapists. And groups like this often discourage folks from building relationships with other group members outside of the designated times. So far, we've given you information about ongoing in-person groups, but a couple of other options I want to let you know about are a bit more nuanced. One of those options is one that we have out at the WGAC, and it's a workshop format, meaning it meets once, usually for a longer period of time to provide information. This is how we run our secondary support workshop. Oftentimes, secondary survivors need some support but don't want to commit to an ongoing group. So we offer a one-time three-hour workshop a couple of times a year to help provide some additional support. Finally, there are a variety of online support groups out there as well. Some are in group form, others look more like a chat room. Either way, these happen all electronically, meaning you can attend them from just about anywhere. This would give you the comfort of being in a space of your choosing, which sometimes makes all the difference to get the support someone needs. They also have the added benefit of being somewhat anonymous, giving participants an added layer of safety. In fact, we have worked with many survivors for whom the idea of leaving their apartment is overwhelming, and these groups help these folks have a necessary and accessible resource. Currently, the WJC doesn't offer a group like this, but the RAIN website can be a great place to look into options like this. Regardless of which type of group that you choose, there are benefits to be had from just simply sharing space with other survivors. We're going to talk about some of the benefits of support groups now. And keep in mind that this certainly isn't an exhaustive list. 
There are so many unspoken benefits that we don't hear about directly from survivors, but that certainly exist. So you may just have to check out a group for yourself to see what benefits you gain from it in your own path to healing. When I've talked to survivors about their experiences in support groups, they often report feeling less isolated and alone. As a survivor, it's so common to feel completely alone with what you're going through. And this can be debilitating, even making you feel like you're crazy because you're so not normal. But survivors report that when they attend a group, they realize they're not as alone as they once thought. With group, they feel that without having to explain it to another person, that person just seems to understand what they've been through. And they so often talk about how powerful it is to have a peer, someone perhaps close to their own age who's had a similar experience, provide support and show up with empathy. This type of support seems to have a more profound impact than only hearing from a professional, such as a counselor or an advocate. Groups can even provide you with a way to learn new ways of coping that you might not have considered before. By getting in a space where you're able to share ideas and learn what's worked for other people, you can expand your own way of healing. And psychoeducational groups can be incredibly helpful with this too, as the premise of the group is to gain and practice new skills like yoga or meditation. One of my favorite parts of group work is the passion that they can ignite. It can be empowering to be in a space with others that feel the same outrage that you do, the same sadness, fear, or even hopelessness. And sometimes, after hearing other survivors' stories, some group members become so passionate about addressing interpersonal violence that they engage in taking action with the help and support of others in the group. For instance, it isn't uncommon for our support group members to choose to go to events together to learn about activism which instill a sense of hope when in the past there's been none. The community created in these groups can be sources of inspiration, motivation, growth, and even catalysts for working towards social change. So another major benefit of groups is that they create a space for survivors to share their feelings without having to censor them or worry if others will be able to understand what they're going through. It can be so healing to share what you're feeling with others and be shown love, support, and compassion through your vulnerability, particularly if you've had experiences in the past where loved ones haven't responded well to your feelings or disclosures of abuse. And sometimes providing support for others takes us out of our own heads and allows us to remember the importance of connecting with others, even within our deepest pain. Often we forget that we heal in relationship to others, not just in isolation. And in fact, isolation can be very detrimental to our healing, keeping us stuck in feelings of self-doubt and convincing us that no one will ever understand and that we'll never be able to have a quote-unquote normal life. Groups provide a safe space to challenge these negative beliefs and practice communication, giving feedback, or showing love and support to others who are struggling. Experiences of interpersonal violence can really mess with our sense of trust. It can feel unsafe to be vulnerable with others, and we might often worry that we'll always be taken advantage of or abused. Being in a group with other survivors is a powerful way to work through the sense of mistrust and to begin to find ways to open to others that feel safe, supportive, and loving. This is one of the benefits of group that may not always be spoken about, but Casey and I have witnessed it happening. 
I remember one survivor always expressing how she felt safer not having close friends because they always seemed to manipulate her. But over time, we watched the same survivor continually provide support and open up in group in ways that we could see were healing for her. In our Western culture, we tend to be very individualistic, meaning that we feel we can't lean on others for support or ask for help. That's not the case everywhere. There are cultures that are communal and share in their grief and healing. Groups give us the opportunity to break through this isolation and provide survivors with the chance to thrive in community. Groups really can be so powerful. And that doesn't mean that they're right for everyone. So we want to shift gears a bit and talk about the common concerns people might have about shared healing. So many of the survivors we've worked with are hesitant to consider joining a group for a variety of reasons. I think the most common concern we hear from people is that they don't believe what happened to them was bad enough to warrant taking up a space in a group. They are overly concerned that their involvement may take the opportunity away from someone more deserving. So, as someone who has facilitated many different groups, please hear me when I say, don't compare the merit of your struggle to someone else's. If you think the space will be helpful for you, enter it, learn from it. It's the whole reason spaces like this exist to begin with. And it's the reason that we create so many different opportunities. Another common concern is how other group members will act or respond. Maybe you feel pressure to talk and to share your story in detail. Or maybe it just feels overwhelming to imagine being so vulnerable in front of a group of people. But here's a helpful thing to remember. Just about every member of the group is also feeling afraid and hesitant. You're not alone in those feelings, and you may even be surprised by how supported you feel in a group setting. But when it comes to sharing your story, you might have some hesitation around if your confidentiality will be respected. You might wonder if what you share will be kept confidential by the members of the group and by the people facilitating it. And that's a really valid concern. Sometimes groups will have a discussion and make a commitment to each member to not share other people's stories outside of the space. And when you're working with a confidential advocate or a counselor, we are ethically bound and legally bound to this commitment. Yet other group members are not held to those same legal standards, but they are asked to be respectful of the confidentiality. So it is important to consider this before entering a new space. And so many of the survivors I've worked with are just on the fence about groups. They don't know if groups are for them and they're hesitant to join only to test it out. My advice here is to find an open group where you can try it out without the longer term commitment. I often encourage survivors to try out our Friday group at least once and just see how it feels. Some come once and never come back, while others who are the most hesitant come and are amazed at how much better they feel. So they keep coming week after week. So far, we've explored some of the benefits and concerns with group work. Now, I want to talk for a moment about important things to keep in mind when thinking about joining a group. We mentioned confidentiality as a common concern, and we want to let you know that it's okay to check with facilitators about the confidentiality policy or expectations before you join a group. Always feel free to ask those questions of group leaders and other members to get a feel for how the group will be run. In fact, most groups will have an intake process for just that purpose. 
It will give you a chance to ask some questions and meet the facilitators ahead of time, but it also will help the facilitators know of important things to be aware about that will help you have a more positive experience. Some good questions to ask might be, is the group peer-led or facilitated by trained professionals? What's the theme or target of the group? Is it specific to survivors of interpersonal violence? What level of sharing is typical in the group? It's also good to ask some logistical questions. How many group members are there? Where does it meet? Is it open or closed? How is conflict handled within the group? Is the group free of charge or is there a fee associated? In fact, some groups are designed it's to meet really the needs important of specific to make sure that the group is open to and respects As an example, our Pride Resource Center has a coming a out group and the Health Network has groups providing support for women of color and for transgender fluid folks. These are just some of the examples of what exists in our community. Always remember that if you're asking these questions and something about the group, the members, or the facilitators doesn't feel right, it's okay to pass and find a better fit for you. And keep in mind that any group that you enter will likely have a set of group norms that they operate from. These can be expressed explicitly or implicitly. In our Friday support group, we always go over group norms whenever we have a new member join. And just to make sure that everyone is on the same page. At the WGAC, our facilitators and our group members operate from a place of unconditional positive regard. That means that we never dismiss another person's reality and always work to show compassion and non-judgment for where a survivor is at in their own healing. Most groups will operate in this type of fashion, and if they don't, feel free to leave and decide it's not for you. You should never be made to feel judged or criticized for how you process your emotions, understand your trauma, or engage in healing. These support groups are not a substitute for individual therapy or one-on-one advocacy. If you're needing specific support with navigating a reporting process or getting connected to other resources on campus, it may be best to set up an individual advocacy appointment. If you're a CSU student, there are a lot of options for you to attend groups on campus. In the broader Fort Collins area, you may want to consider reaching out to SAVA or Crossroads Safe House to inquire about what groups they have currently running or planned for the future. The Wings Foundation also offers groups throughout Colorado specifically for survivors of child sexual assault. As always, we'll include the links to these resources in the show notes. If you're outside of CSU, Fort Collins, or Colorado, you can often find groups by doing a simple Google search, connecting with your local rape crisis center, or calling 211. If you aren't aware, 211 is the most comprehensive source of local services information in the United States and Canada. They can help people find local resources anywhere from mental health to the needs of food and shelter. 211 also often has groups listed online if you do a simple Google search for 211 and then your state. It should pop up. It is our hope that in talking more about groups in this podcast, we've given you a better idea as to what groups entail and help to ease some of your fears and concerns about joining. But please know you are always the one to decide what type of support you're ready for and what help you need. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WJAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. 
That's W-G-A-C at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy in the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in the podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.